we doing today, Summit Church? Good, it's great to see you. I hope you're having a happy new year. Um, I hope you're having a wonderful day today. Uh, my name is Mel Massingale. I'm the lead pastor here at the Summit. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad you're worshiping with us today. Uh, I just wanna say thank you for making the Summit a part of your day today. If you're a guest with us, I would love for you to take just a moment and fill this card out. There should be one in the seat back in front of you. Uh, but if this is your first time, we'd love just to connect with you, get to know you a little better, help you get to know us a little better. Uh, you can fill this out, and then at the end of our worship experience, stop by the information center. It's on your right-hand side. Uh, you can stop by there, give this to them. They're gonna answer any question you've got about the church. They're also gonna give you a free gift, one of our Summit mugs. It's got our logo on there, vision statement. Uh, but it's just a great way for us to connect with you and get to know you a little bit and answer any questions you've got about the church. Uh, you can also connect with us on social media. If you are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you can find us at all those locations by searching Summit PA Church. You'll find us there and you can stay up to date with everything that's going on around here at the Summit. I uh, also wanna welcome all of you that are watching live online at summitpa.church, no matter where you may be or how you may be joining us today. I'm so grateful that you are with us and that you're starting your year like you are and inviting us into your home. So thank you so much for worshiping with us. We know that there are people literally watching all over the world and we're grateful that you have made the summit a part of your day. So God bless you and thank you for worshiping with us today. Um, <clears throat> a couple things coming up that I wanna mention to you. First of all, did everybody have a good Christmas? Okay, I was just curious, so we're good. A um, couple things I wanna mention to you real quickly. Number one, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but every year uh, that I've been here at the summit, we've started every year with a corporate fast together. And so uh, this year is no different. We're just inviting people to find something in your life that you're willing to lay down for a season. Uh, and we're gonna do this till the 21st, so a three-week fast. Um, something that you're willing to lay down for the next few weeks. Uh, something that'll help you grow closer to God. So it might not even be something bad, it might be something perfectly good that you're just laying down. It might be a type of food, it might be a meal. Maybe you're gonna say, I'm not gonna eat lunch for the next three weeks or whatever it might be. And that's between you and God. But we just have found this is a great way uh, to use this spiritual discipline to help us grow in our faith. And so, um, so I, I've talked to some people that are giving up social media or things like that. Um, and it's gotta be, one family said before the service this morning, the, the dad said, I'm giving up murder for, for uh, the fast. And I go, I don't think that's what we're talking about here. And hopefully not. If you have to give up murder for the fast, we've got bigger issues to worry about, okay? Uh, but, uh, but really, it's just laying something down for God's glory that we can say, okay, God, I'm gonna forsake this for a season and just grow, grow my walk with you. So we wanna encourage and invite you to be a part of that. Um, and then January 9th through the 13th, here at the church, we're gonna have different things throughout that week, uh, just times of corporate prayer together, and we'll be letting you know more about that next weekend. But even this week on social media, we'll be letting people know, here's some options and some things that are available from ways you can pray with us corporately here at the church. So some of those will be uh, noon, lunch, I mean, uh, lunchtime prayers together, but we'll have some different things we'll tell you about. I also wanna to mention to you, we're starting our second Wednesday services back. Uh, we took the month of December off, but we're gonna start those back a week from Wednesday. So uh, next Wednesday, January the 11th, uh, here at 7 p.m. in this room, we're gonna have Peter Haas with us. Peter leads an incredible church in Minneapolis, Minnesota called Substance Church. Uh, it's one of the fastest growing churches in America, and uh, he's a highly influential leader, and I'm so excited to have Peter with us, uh, and I believe it's gonna be a great night. So. Um, come be a part of that, mark your calendar, be here that night, 7 p.m. We'll have a great time together. Uh, if you're a parent of uh, kids in our kids ministry, you probably noticed 
that our kids' ministry looks a little different this weekend. Um, we started the use of our temporary building out here on the west side of our facility. Um, we've got our old kids' wing shut down, and that was not the original plan. The original plan was that would be open for you to use that hallway to get your K through sixth graders upstairs. The room behind us is the youth room, and the plan was that you'd be able to use that to get your kids upstairs. And what happened is, um, to be honest with you, the demolition has gone better than we expected. I've never been so excited to tear walls down, but uh, the demolition is going really well, but as a result, there were, there were more hazards than we anticipated, and so we did not wanna let kids go through there um, and have there be any risk at all to your children. So what we did is we blocked it off this weekend uh, because we want your kids to have a great time. We want them to learn about God. But if, if we're not providing a safe environment for your kids, then all the rest is really for naught. And so we want to create a safe environment for your children. That's, that is a, a, a really important thing to us. So we blocked off that wing just for this weekend. And our, our plan or our intention is next weekend, that will be open for you to take your kids uh, to the elevator. So six through, uh, K through sixth graders can take this hallway around to the elevator upstairs to the youth room. That's where their class will be. Now, toddler and preschool, uh, they are out in the temporary building. So you check your kids in like normal. You go through this uh, labyrinth of office areas just uh, outside of the, the auditorium here and go out this hallway. I'll take you out there. Um, our kids workers are out there. We got a great team of kids workers and, and leaders out there. They love your kids, they love God, and they do a wonderful job. So they're out there. And then the nursery, so if your kids are, are little babies, infants, uh, they'll be in the nursery and that's exactly where it has been. And that's gonna stay there until just a few weeks before completion of our building. So that'll stay there until uh, the, the early part of March at, at, the, at the latest. So uh, just so you know, that's the way things are laid out. But just know, guys, I'm so appreciative of your patience, uh, of your enthusiasm. So many people are excited about what God is doing, what's happening here at the church. So I just wanna say thank you for that. And yesterday I was looking at it and I realized, um, you know what, this is really inconvenient. None of us love the setup we have right now, but when I looked at the calendar, we've got 84 days that we've got to put up with an inconvenience like this. Uh, and that is not real long. Uh, so 84 days to put up with this, and then we'll be in a brand new, shiny, sparkly building that it's gonna be an incredible tool to reach new families. So I appreciate your patience with us, thank you. If you've got questions, Pastor Justin's around, Pastor Steve's around, I'm around. Any of our staff can help you answer questions about that, so stop us and let us know. Uh, we're starting a new series today. Uh, and I'm excited. This is actually a series we intended on starting in 2016. I was planning to start it in the month of August, and we had a series we were doing on the book of James, and I just wanted to take some more time with that, so we, we got rid of this series and moved it, and I'm really excited that we're actually starting the year with this series. I think it's gonna be really appropriate for the day and age and the time we live in today. Um, and it has to do with Babylon. Now, if you are new to church, you're new to the Bible, uh, you might see the word Babylon or hear the word Babylon and think, I don't, I'm not really sure, I think I've heard it, but I'm not positive. Um, but the Babylonian Empire was one of the most powerful empires in the world. At the time, it, there was, it was really rivaled by no other nation or, or, or empire. Um, it began in a, the city of Babylon. And Babylon, uh, in modern day terms, is in southern Iraq, about 53 miles south of Baghdad. Um, it was the first city in human history to have 200,000 inhabitants. So it was a huge city, even in ancient times, thousands of years ago. It spent about 1,500 years as a center of influence and power in the world. 
Um, it's mentioned in scripture over and over and over, as early as Genesis chapter 10, and then we see it all the way back in Revelation chapter 18 as well. Uh, the Babylonian Empire was a ruthless, powerful nation. Um, they were feared by other nations, and so many times other nations wouldn't even put up a fight. They would just lay down arms if the Babylonians were coming. Um, they didn't have to fight many battles at, at one point because people just surrendered. Um, and one of the things they did that was particularly ruthless is they were, were good at swallowing up other nations. They would actually um, drive the culture out, the, the in, indigenous culture out, and they would introduce Babylonian culture to these people. And so what would happen is um, they would swallow up a nation and they would cause this nation to forget who they were. And they would cause them to take on this new culture, this Babylonian culture. And they did this a number of different ways, but one of the most, um, one of the most telling or influential things they did was they changed their, how would you say it? Well, they weren't slaves, but the, the, their new residents, they would change their names. And so what they would do is they would bring in these people and they'd go, oh, no, no, your name was Jim? You're not Jim anymore. This is your new name. And they would give them a Babylonian name. And then they would indoctrinate them in their culture. They would indoctrinate them in their beliefs. Uh, they would help them get rid of their religious beliefs and indoctrinate them in, into Babylonian religious beliefs. And so they would, they would sh slowly shift these people to they, where they weren't even who they were anymore. Now they were Babylonian. And you can see this happen with the nation of Israel uh, in 2 Kings chapter 24. The Babylonians showed up. They took the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah at that time captive, um, and they overthrew uh, the, the king at the time. Um, and you see there's a couple people you might have heard their names before. Um, Ezekiel and Daniel were both prophets, um, and they were deportees during this time. Uh, so Ezekiel and Daniel both wrote books of the Bible, and we're going to spend most of our time over the next few weeks out of the book of Daniel. That's where our source text will be taken from. Um, but they were notable deportees, but also there were three other guys that were deportees as well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You might know them if you've been around church as the three Hebrew children. They were the ones that were thrown into the fiery furnace, but they didn't burn. Um, and so these guys were taken away as well. And so what the Babylonians would do is they would go into uh, a country that they seized control of and they would take the best and the brightest. So they would take the um, typically children of aristocracy or people that had wealth or means or notoriety or influence, uh, people that were the best looking, if, if I can say it this way, it sounds crude, but they were the best stock. This is literally what they would do. And they'd say, we're gonna take you back to Babylon. And they would take them back uh, and they would also take the best of their resources with them. So the best livestock, the best of everything they would take with them back to Babylon to create something new. Uh, and they would take the best workers and they would spread them all throughout the empire. And then they would leave the worst of the worst, the people who didn't have any abilities, didn't have any strong suits. Maybe they were uh, disabled for some reason, mentally, physically, whatever it was. They would leave them behind as as um, inhabitants of the old city. And so what they would do is they would crush the culture out of the people that they'd captured. And we see this with, with the, the people that we'd mentioned earlier, Daniel and these three Hebrew children, all their names were changed. Uh, their identities were changed. Uh, Daniel went from being God is my judge to Belteshazzar, which means favored by Bel, was that Bel was a Babylonian God. Hananiah went from Yahweh or God is gracious to Shadrach, which means Aku's command, and Aku was the Babylonian moon God. Um, we see Mishael, who, whose name means who is like God, and then they changed his name to Meshach. 
which means who is like a coup. And we see the devil does this. He will, um, he will create a generic from the original and it kind of looks the same and it, it kind of resembles, but it's different. It's not the same. And this is what he did. He, he created uh, something that kind of looked similar, but it was totally different. Azariah, his name was Yahweh, or God has helped, and the Babylonians changed his name to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, which is another one, one of the Babylonian gods. And so they, what they tried to do is cause these people to forget who they were. He, they tried to squeeze the culture out of them so that they could become Babylonians. <clears throat> tried to get them to conform to this new culture. If you're interested in finding out more about the name changes, we talked a little more in depth about that back in May, uh, the 21st and 22nd of May in 2016, we went through that in a sermon. So feel free, go back and find that on our sermon archive. You can go back and listen to that. <clears throat> but when I look at Babylon, I realize that <clears throat> our culture today is not the same, but it's not too different. Uh, the world we live in today is a world that really wants us to conform to the culture of this world. And, and if, if we can be honest, I think in many ways, uh, the church in the United States has conformed to the culture of our world in many ways. I, I think if our parents or grandparents or maybe great-grandparents were alive today to see some of the changes that have happened to families, uh, that have happened in society, that have happened in our culture, they'd be shocked because these changes have been sweeping in many ways. Uh, whether it's changes in families or changes in society in general, uh, there were things that were cultural norms 15 or 20 years ago and values that were normal, even in, in, in unreligious families that today are forgotten about. And this isn't a political statement, it is just a statement of reality. Um, whether it's ideas like legalizing marijuana or our views on family, uh, and, and if, if I can just get in your business right now, um, <clears throat> society's view on pornography is disturbing. I read a study recently that said 70% of people in the United States view pornography at least once a week. And, and it's not just men. It's women, and it's not just men and women, it's children. Children are being introduced to pornography earlier and earlier than ever before, and it is changing and it's shifting our culture. It's changing the way we look at relationships and healthy relationships. It's changing the way we view the opposite sex, and it's changing the way we view ourselves. It is influencing us. Babylon is changing us. And we need to realize that, we need to recognize that. And this isn't a message today about how the world is horrible and we should hate the world and we should batten down the hatches. It's really quite the opposite. That it's not about us battening down the hatches and saying if we can just survive it, we're gonna make it out okay. But it really is about us saying, God, how can we as your people thrive in a culture that's not just ambivalent toward Christianity but in many ways is combative toward Christianity? God, how can we thrive in this? And one of the questions I ask is, how did, we, how did we get here? And we didn't get here overnight. We drifted. Um, I told the staff recently, we were just talking about what we do and how we do it. And I just said, guys, we, we gotta keep pushing. We gotta keep working. Uh, you know, you apply force and that's what causes things to change. Um, and I don't mean force like we're forceful, but you apply force just to 
It's just a principle of physics. You apply force and that's what causes movement and change. And so the minute we stop applying force, that's when we begin to drift. And I don't know if you know this, but we never drift to improvement. Did you know that? (laughs) If we could drift to improvement, I'd be the fittest person in America right now, all right? In our health, in our finances, in our relationships, if you neglect the relationship with your spouse, it won't be long before you're gonna end up in a place and you're gonna go, how did we end up here? Well, I can tell you how you ended up there. You drifted, you stopped applying force to your marriage and now you drifted to this place. And we don't drift to improvement, we, we drift to the ditch. That's why if you fall asleep at the wheel, you don't end up in the driveway of your house, right? <laughs> you end up in the ditch. That's what happens. And if I can be so bold, I believe that's what's happened to the church in America. We've drifted. We've, we've taken away the force and we, we've gone, we don't wanna offend anybody. We don't wanna hurt anybody's feelings. Let's just get along. Let's just, let's just, let's just keep to ourselves. And as a result, we've drifted. And we've lost our influence in the world. We've lost our influence in society. We've lost our influence in culture. And even worse, we've been influenced by our culture. And that's not what God has for us. See, God wants us to apply force. He wants us to begin to do something to change the world we live in. (laughs) When I I was a kid, I would ride my bike in my neighborhood and um, there was a gentle slope uh, that I could ride up, it was a little bit of work, but then I could get to this hill and it was a steep slope down. And so I'd ride up this big hill to get to the steep slope and I could coast almost all the way home. This is the thing, you can't coast uphill. You have to work to get up the hill. And this is where we're at as a nation. We need to be working to get up the hill. Some of you are in a marriage that you're at the bottom of a hill and you're going, how did we get here? Well, to get up the hill, you might have to work. Some of you in your finances, you're saying, how did we get here? You you might have to work a little bit to get up that hill. But we have to begin to apply force in order to see improvement. The title of this series that we're gonna be walking through is called Thriving in Babylon. Um, And the companion piece to this series is a book by a a guy named Larry Osborne. uh, And it's available out in our resource center out by the stairway. Stop by there, you can pick this up. Um, It is a great book. It is a great piece to go with on this series. Uh, And I got the opportunity to spend a day with Larry at his house um, a year before last. And he's an incredible man of God, pastors a great church in Southern California. And I'm excited about what this series can do for us and do for you and do for your family. Um, And this is gonna be a companion piece for that. So like I said, we're gonna walk through this series together, primarily in the book of Daniel, but but I feel like this would be good if you wanna go a little deeper, a little further with what we're talking through. Um, This series really begins with this idea that I wanna introduce to you this morning. And we're gonna start in Daniel chapter one and we're gonna begin in verse one. And this is what it says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So what we see is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon set their eyes on Judah and said, we want you. And so they besieged Judah. And this is what it says in verse two. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So let me just paint this picture for you. Judah is the chosen people of God. Judah, it was, Judah and Israel split kingdoms, um, and Israel was already dispersed at this time. Judah 
was, uh, was the last remaining house of Israel. And so Judah is a chosen people of God. And Babylon shows up and says, we want Judah. And I love what Daniel says here, because he doesn't say the Babylonians were too strong. They overcame us by force. That's not what he says. He says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. He says that God gave Judah to Babylon. And you have to go, well, why would God do that? That doesn't even seem to make sense, does it? It seems counterintuitive that God would give his chosen people to Bab the Babylonians. The Babylonians were ruthless. They were evil. Why would God do that? That doesn't make sense, does it? And we look at this and we go, God, why would you, why would you do that? And one of the things you have to understand about this passage in particular, but really the entire book of Daniel, is that it was written not as a diary. So it wasn't wrote, written moment by moment as Daniel was dealing with these situations, he would write about it. Actually, what happened is at, toward the end of his life, he looked back in hindsight at the events of his life and he wrote them out. So he was able to look back at situations on his life and, and he was able to look at them differently than he did when he walked through them. So for you, maybe you've walked through a situation in your life and, and you're dealing with difficulty, you're dealing with hardship, you're dealing with hard, difficult circumstances. And at the time you thought, God, have you forgotten about me? God, do you even know what's going on in my life? God, have you abandoned me? But then you look back at that situation later and you go, thank God I went through that because God was sparing me from something else or God was really walking through me with, that, uh, with me through this situation. I just didn't even realize it at the time because that's the power of hindsight. We can look back at the situation differently um, once we're through it than we are when we're walking through it. Does that make sense? Has anybody ever experienced that before? Okay, five of you have. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I think we all have, right? And this is what Daniel did. He looked back at his life and he goes, okay, you know what? When the Babylonians showed up, yeah, that was terrifying. But you know what? I realize now that God gave us into the hands of the Babylonians. He recognized what was really going on. So you have to ask, why would God do that? Well, I don't know but God had a purpose for it. Um, one of the big ideas that I want us to see through today that I think is going to be a touchstone for us over the next few weeks, and I want you to catch this. This is something that Daniel understood, and this is something I think we need to understand as we deal with a culture that's not just ambivalent toward Christianity, but in many ways, it is combative toward Christianity. It's this idea. God is in control of who is in control. I want that to sink in. I'm gonna say it a couple more times today probably. God is in control of who's in control. So let's, let's bring this home a little bit. Uh, maybe you're here today and the candidate you voted for is not the one who's gonna be inaugurated on January 20th. Now no cheers, no nothing, okay? We're gonna keep it civil in here. Maybe your candidate is not gonna be inaugurated on January 20th. Can I tell you something? God is in control of who is in control. Maybe you're here and uh, you're one of the people that threatened to leave the country if the other candidate would have been inaugurated on January 20th. Guess what? God is in control of who's in control. Um, the seat of power in the United States is not at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. No, it's in heaven, it's on high. See, God doesn't care about who's, who's the president because God is in control of who's in control. Maybe you're here today and you have a boss and you know that your boss, if you shaved your boss's head, they would have the mark of the beast somewhere, right? <laughs> your boss is not, just, is not just a bad boss. Your boss might be the Antichrist. You're pretty sure, right? 
But this is what you have to understand. God is in control of who is in control. So did you hear the groans? Like, oh God, is that for real? Yeah. God has a purpose and a plan, and we don't always see the purpose and the plan, but we have to know that God is in control and that God is good. Matthew chapter five, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter five, verse 45, the second part of that verse. He said, for he, and he's talking about God, for, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You know, we don't understand this principle. We don't like it very much because we don't like it when bad things happen to good people, do we? It doesn't seem fair. And sometimes it seems less fair when good things happen to bad people. Has anybody ever experienced that before? You're up for a promotion at work and the jerk in your office gets it instead of you? He's a, sick, uh, he's a suck up, he's a kiss up. You know, he, he's a jerk, he treats people badly, but he knows how to he play the political game, so he got the job. And you're sitting here thinking, why in the world? Like, I'm actually a good guy. I go to church once a month, right? I prayed one time and I'm a good guy. Why is he getting the promotion? Why does good things happen to bad people? But I think we've all been on the other side of that where bad things happened to us and we felt like we were doing the right thing, right? But Jesus makes it very clear that, that life isn't fair. Good, good things happen to bad people and bad things unfortunately happen to good people. We want life to be slick and clean and fair and even Stephen, but that's not how life is. And this started all the way back in Genesis chapter four. There was a, a good man named Abel who offered a, a, a sacrifice to God that was pleasing to God. And then his brother Cain offered a sacrifice that wasn't pleasing to God. Cain was jealous of Abel. Cain killed him. Bad thing happened to a good person. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I know God is good in spite of it. Um, when my kids were young, even recently this happened, um, they, they want things to be even, right? And so one of the things they would do is they would, uh, we would have like one piece of cake left and they would both want the piece of cake. And I'd go, okay, we're gonna split it. Okay, and I'd go, you get to cut it and you get to pick the piece. Does that make sense? So Emma, my youngest, might cut, but Abby would get to pick. So you better believe when it came time to cut that piece of cake and the hand was trembling, they wanted to get it right. You know, they would get like the jeweler's monocule and they'd look at it, they down to the... I mean, down to the millimeter, we're, getting, we're nailing this. They're gonna be judicious about this piece of cake. They'd cut it perfectly and be like, all right, perfect. And, and then the other one would take time and they'd look and examine and they would feel them. And I mean, it was a big deal, right? Because they wanted to make sure they got the best piece. Because they wanted it to be even. They wanted it to be fair. But that is not how life is. Life is not even. Life is not fair. Bad things happen to good people. And I don't understand why. But it's true. Um, in Habakkuk, that's uh, a short little book of the Bible. Um, Habakkuk was alive during the time of the Assyrians, which is that they came after the Babylonians. And the Assyrians were on their way to take over um, Judah, Israel. Um, and they were on their way. And, and Habakkuk Praise this prayer to God. And this is just the, this is the Mel's version. It's a short version. Um, but Habakkuk basically prays this prayer to God and says, God, the Assyrians are coming and they are evil. And God responds and says, yeah, I know. And Habakkuk says, what are you gonna do about it? He said, nothing. What do you, what do you mean nothing, God? 
you better do something, they're bad guys. And God basically responds like this. He basically says, I know they're evil and I know they're coming, but I'm gonna use them as an implement or as a tool of judgment on you. <laughs> How would you like that response from God, right? It's gonna end the conversation pretty quickly. And, and Habakkuk was saying, well, wait a second, we're your people? Why are you doing this to us? Don't you see how evil they are? And God basically said, I'm gonna deal with them, but I'm gonna deal with you first. We see this again in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah is prophesying about the Babylonian empire. And he said, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations, he's talking about Israel now, these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So, so what God is saying here is, oh, I'm gonna deal with the Babylonians. I'm gonna deal with the Assyrians. I'm gonna take care of them, but I'm gonna take care of you first. Have you ever had a conversation, maybe if you've got kids or maybe when you were a kid, you had this conversation and it went something like this. Hey, can I go to such and such? I wanna spend the night with these people. No, I'm not comfortable with that. Well, so-and-so's going, and I've, I've realized as I'm getting older, I'm turning into my dad. Does anybody else have that experience that you're turning into my father? No, I'm just kidding. That you're turning into your parents, right? You find yourself saying things, and you're like, oh my gosh, that is exactly what my parents would have said, right? And so my girls will say something like, well, so-and-so gets to, and I will respond and say, I don't care. They're not my kid, right? I'm gonna deal with my kids, I'm gonna let their parents deal with their kids. And this is what God is saying. God's saying, I don't care about them, they're not my kids. So what God is saying is, hey, I'm gonna take care of the Babylonians, but first, I'm gonna take care of you. Because God's judgment always begins with his house. He always begins on the inside and moves out. He doesn't begin on the outside and move in. See, some, there are some people in our world that are praying, God, bring judgment on, and they name a certain group in our society or in our culture. And that's not what we should be praying because God's judgment always begins with his house. What we should be praying is, God, redeem them, bring them home, let them experience salvation, right? We don't wanna be judged, but that's exactly what we're praying. See, God is more interested in our holiness than he is in our happiness. And this is something I think we've got twisted around in our society and in our culture. We think God is more interested in us being happy and comfortable and uh, just taking every, care of all of our problems and all of our issues, and we're just gonna be happy, everything's good. But that's not God's primary concern. God's primary concern is that you are shaped and molded into his, into his image. He wants you to look like him, and that's his primary concern. He wants you to be holy more than he wants you to be happy. See, 70 years seems like a long time, doesn't it? When I was a kid, I used to think 70 was old. Anybody remember that? Some of you are 70 in the room now, and you're like, I'm not old, I get it. I'll be 40 in a month, and 70 doesn't seem nearly as old as it did when I was like 10. When I was 10, I thought, if I live to be 70, I'll be the oldest man alive, right? And now I'm like, man, 70, you're just getting started at 70. 70 seems like a long time for us because we compare it to a lifespan, but... When we think about it this way, it really is not that long a time. So when, when God said, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you be in captivity to the Babylonians for 70 years, 
I'm sure there are people of Israel that were going, wait a second, 70 years, I'll be dead by the time you're done with this, right? And if God came to you in the middle of your turmoil and said, hey, don't worry, I'm gonna take care of it in 70 years, it'll be done. You'd be like, what? So my, my kids or my grandkids are gonna see the benefit, right? Hey, I know you're dealing with a lot of heartache, but don't worry, 70 more years. I don't know about you, my kids have no concept of time. Uh, that's why you can be riding in a car um, and they'll say, Dad, how much further? And we'll go, oh, we'll be there in about two hours. And 10 minutes later, they'll be like, hey, Dad, how much further? we are like, well, it's about an hour and 50 minutes, right? And like, how much longer? And they keep doing this. And you're like, oh my gosh, like, buy a watch, right? They have zero concept of time. They don't get it. They don't understand it. Um, and we're kind of the same way. Our concept of time in the terms of eternity, they're very different than God. See, God sees the whole thing. It's all laid out. And the Bible tells us that our lives, our lifespan is but a vapor. It's like a, a vapor in the wind and it disappears. So when we look at 70 years, in the, in the cosmic sense, 70 years is nothing. But we look at it and go, God, 70 years? God goes, it's not that big a deal. It, it's a moment, it's a speck in time, and that's it. So when we look at our suffering and we go, oh, this is taking forever, God looks at it and goes, no, 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 it's, it's not that long. Because when we look at eternity, because we are eternal beings, we're gonna spend eternity somewhere. So this life that we have that's 80 years, 90 years, 100 years, maybe if you take as good care of yourself as I do, 120 years, whatever it is, right? It is a moment compared to eternity. And we need to have that kind of view on our suffering and what we're dealing with and on the culture we live in, that it's not just about, gosh, can we get through this? But it's about, hey, God's got a purpose and plan, and this is not as long as it seems like it is. Um, I won't read this whole thing, but in, I wanna encourage you to read it uh, over the next few days. In Daniel chapter nine, um, Daniel prays this really incredible prayer of repentance to God. Uh, and it begins in verse three and it ends in verse 19. Like I said, I won't read the whole thing. But if you look at Daniel's life, he is a guy that there are no recorded sins of Daniel in scripture. It doesn't mean he was sinless. It just means there were none recorded. So in people like um, Moses or Noah or David um, or Abraham, there are notable sins that they committed. But you don't see that in Daniel's life. But here Daniel prays this prayer of corporate repentance. He prays this prayer of God forgive us. And it's interesting because he prays this first line and then after that, well, I guess he doesn't pray it, he prepares himself. And then during the course of this prayer, he prays 25 times. He, he prays this prayer, God, we have sinned or God, I have sinned. And it's interesting because this is a guy who's humbled himself. Even though he wasn't responsible, he acknowledges his place. He's, he's culpable in it. So in Daniel chapter nine, verse three, he says, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So he's humbling himself. These were all signs, outward signs of a humble heart. And so he humbled himself before God. And then in, if you skip down to verse 16, he kind of concludes the prayer. And he says, oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sin and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword among all around us. He, he's saying basically we've become a laughing stock. And he's not saying it's your fault, God. He's saying it's our fault because of what we've done, because of what we've been a part of, 
and if I can say it this way, because of where we have drifted to, we've become a laughing stock of the nations around us. We're a punchline. He goes on in verse 17 and says, now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. I love how he, he says, God, this is gonna be for your glory. For your own sake, do this, so that you could be glorified. He goes on to say in verse 18, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. I love this. He's saying, God, we need you and we're calling out to you and we're not doing it on, from a stance of we're so good, we deserve it. He said, in fact, we don't deserve it. We're not asking you this because of our righteousness, because our righteousness would not get us there. We're asking you this because you are a merciful God and you are a good God. Because he's basically saying, we have made our bed and we are laying in it. We deserve exactly what we have right now. He says, so God, because you're a merciful God, have mercy on us. He says, oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. I love at the end of this how he puts it back on God and goes, okay, God, it's your name on the line here, right? I need you to do something. Your name is on the line. It's your people and your city who bear your name. So God, you need to do something. You need to act. But I love the prayer. He says, God, we're a mess. We've drifted. We've ended up in the ditch. We don't know how we got here, but it doesn't matter at this point. We need help getting out. So God, help us. Do something, move miraculously, make your name known, make your name famous. And I think, when I read this, I, I think, why am I not praying more prayers like this? It's so easy, we talked about this a while back, it's so easy to pray help me prayers. God, help me do better, help me have this, help me at work, help me with my family, help me, help me, help me, give me, give me, give me. If more Christians prayed prayers like this, Prayers of corporate repentance, God, we've messed up. And it's not just those people, it's us too. God, we need your help desperately. How would God move? What would God do if we truly did that and responded that way to God? See, Daniel was a good man. He was an innocent man. And I'm sure there were lots of good and innocent men in, in Judah at that time. But they were still on the receiving end of this, this judgment. And what we have to see is over and over throughout scripture and in our lives and in your experience, the innocent can get caught in the backwash of the judgment of God. There are innocent people, they get caught in that and I don't understand why. It goes back to that question, why do good things happen, bad things happen to good people? And I don't know. I do know this though. Um, there's never a hardship that's wasted by God. There's never a tear that's cried that God lets go to waste. There's never a pain, there's never difficulty that God will let go. He always wants to take those things and use them for his glory. He is always behind the scenes setting the stage for his name to be made great and for him to receive honor. If we'll allow him to, if we'll trust him, if we'll submit to him through this process, through our difficulty, through our heartache. Because again, the big idea for the day is God is in control of who's in control. God is sovereign. God can do anything. And God is good. So why do 
bad things happen to good people? I don't know exactly. Um, you know, you read incidents uh, where people get trapped in human slavery or human trafficking. Um, you hear stories fairly regularly now about people who are being kidnapped into this kind of thing. That's heartbreaking. I don't understand why these things happen. This last week, um, my wife mentioned a story to me, and I did some looking, you know, verified it. But um, you might have heard this or read it or, or seen it on the local news. Um, in Johnstown, there was a couple, and they have a five had a five month old daughter, and this couple, they were drug addicts, and they overdosed together, and they died. When they died, their five-month-old was in the bassinet just feet away from them. And nobody checked on them. Nobody checked on her. And a few days later, she died. She died of starvation, and uh, she was dehydrated. And when I hear that story, it doesn't just break my heart or make me sad. It makes me angry. And I think, God, why would you let these things happen in our world? Why would you let a seemingly good marriage go down the tubes because of somebody says they don't feel like they're in love anymore? Why would you let betrayals happen? Why would you let abuse happen? Why would you let disease happen? Why would you let a child be born with cancer? And I don't have an answer. I don't have a good answer. I don't know why that would happen exactly, but I do know this, God's in control and he's good and he's working things for his glory somehow. When we look at the grand scheme of time, we look and we go, there's so much suffering, there's so much chaos in the culture we live in today, so many bad things going on and it seems like it's not stopping. And I think back to God's timeline that he sees time much differently than we do. That we think it seems like it's endless, but God looks at it and it's a speck. And I know that his justice is coming. Revelation chapter 18, verse 21, it says this. Uh, this is a, a prophetic word about Babylon. And it says, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Now, um, in the Old Testament specifically, it will talk about Babylon, and it typically means the Babylonian Empire, the specific city of Babylon. Uh, but when you get into the New Testament, it can also be interpreted as uh, a, a, an evil culture. And so what, one of the ways you can interpret this is that it's not just the city in southern Iraq, but it, it's talking about this evil culture that God is going to return, and he's going to cast down, and he's going to He's gonna wipe evil culture off the map someday. He's gonna reinstall a new heaven and an earth. And as Christians, there's something to hope for in that. Um, if you would, imagine with me just for a second. Indulge me, help me with this. Imagine, if you would, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Maybe it's a landscape. Uh, maybe you visited the Grand Canyon or you've been to a tropical beach there's a sunset or sunrise. Maybe it was the Appalachians, you were there and it was just beautiful, it was gorgeous. Maybe, maybe you're in D.C. when the 
when the, 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 it's blooming and it's everything's beautiful, and I mean, whatever it is, imagine the most beautiful sight you've ever seen. And now realize, when you think about that, that that's the broken, fractured version of what God created. See, when God created the world, he created it, it was perfect, and then centered it into the world, and it fractured and it broke everything. So when we see something and we go, man, that is beautiful and that's lovely and it doesn't get any better than that, what we have to understand is it does get better than that. That God actually created something better, but what we're seeing is the broken version. We're seeing the plan B version. That God's got something better in store. And we're gonna see it, we're gonna experience it. What we're seeing now is not his best. It's the plan B. And he's going to come and he's going to restore his original vision, his original version. He's gonna install that for us. We get to experience that. That there is a new heaven and a new earth, that there won't be abuse, there will not be human trafficking, there will not be neglect, there won't be sickness or disease or famine or poverty or homelessness. All these things will be elim uh, uh, eliminated. They will be obliterated. And the new culture that God is bringing in will marginalize it and erase it all. What do we do until then? Well, we don't batten down the hatches. We don't hope we can just survive until Jesus comes. What we do is we say, God, how can we thrive in this culture? What can we do to push back against the darkness that's encroached on us? How, how can we take back ground that's been taken from us? What can we do to influence and love our world to Christ? Because that's what he's calling us to do. But what we have to do through that is understand that God is in control of who is in control. Let's pray together. God, I love you and I thank you that you are in control and that we can trust you. And that God, we don't always understand what's going on or what's happening in our world. I don't understand why bad things happen to good people. Lord, I don't understand abuse and neglect. Lord, I don't understand these things, but God, I know that you're good. So I'm asking today that you would just help us. Lord, help those that are here that are struggling, that are dealing with difficult circumstances. God, help them see that you are good and you are in control and you have a purpose and plan. God, I pray that you'd help us see with your eyes uh, that time really is just a, a vapor in the wind. So Lord, let us endure suffering well. Let us endure hardship well. Let us trust you deeply through it. I pray for those here that don't know you, God. I pray that you'd open up their hearts. Let them experience you. Let them make you Lord of their lives today. And I pray that it would change everything. So God, have your way with us over these next few minutes. And be glorified in this place. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed all over this room, if you're here today and you say, Mel, truth be told, I'm not really a Christian. I'm not really walking with God. I've never made Jesus Lord of my life. Maybe you're religious. Maybe you've got a religious background, but you recognize the fact today that you are not walking with the Lord. And, and you say, I wanna make Jesus Lord of my life. I, I wanna know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I died today, I'm going to heaven. I'm not gonna make you come forward or embarrass you. I just wanna pray with you where you are. So if you're here today and you say, Mel, that's me, pray for me. I wanna, I wanna make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be bold enough just to slip your hand up real high where I can see it and I'll acknowledge it and you can put your hand back down. Is there anybody here that say that's me? Thanks, up in the balcony. Thanks, over here on my right, a couple of hands. Praise God. Thank you on my far right. Thank you, sir. You can put your hand down. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Who else? Say, that's me. Pray for me, Mel. I want to make Jesus Lord of my life today. Just a few more seconds. Anyone else want to join these four that raise their hand? Say, that's me. Thank you, sir. Over here on my right. You can put your hand down. Praise God. 
like every person in this room, whether you raised your hand or not, just to say this really simple prayer after me. Repeat this prayer out loud. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me by paying the price for my sins on the cross. Today I am yours and I'm asking you to use my life for your glory. I'm putting you in control and I'm putting you in charge. So take me where you want me to go. I love you and I trust you. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today. Thank you, Lord. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, there's a card that looks like this one in the seat back in front of you. On one side it says need prayer, on the other side it says salvation. If you prayed that prayer today and you meant it, uh, whether you raised your hand or not, I wanna encourage you to take this card out that says salvation, fill it out. And then as you're leaving today, there's some offering boxes throughout the room. Just slip this in an offering box on your way out the door. We wanna take this and help you take the next step in your faith journey. We wanna help you grow in your faith. I said earlier that we don't drift to improvement, we drift to the ditch and, and we wanna apply force. We wanna help you apply force to your relationship with God so that you can grow and get to where you wanna be in your, in your walk with Him. Now, if you're here today uh, and you don't wanna fill this card out, you feel a little bit uncomfortable, that's okay. You can take out your cell phone and you can respond by simply texting the word salvation to the number 555-888. So if you're sitting in this room or maybe you're watching online and you responded today or you need to respond, simply text the word salvation to the number 555-888. Let us know about your decision and we're gonna help you take the next step. It's really simple. We try to make it as easy as we could for you. So thank you so much. Those of you that made that decision today, we're so proud of you. I'm so excited for what God's gonna do in your life. And we're so excited that we get to be part of your journey. This is what's gonna happen right now. Our worship team is gonna lead us one final song. As they do, our prayer team is available on either side of this stage. If you need prayer for any reason at all, as we begin to sing, step out here from your seat, find one of our prayer team members, let them agree with you in prayer. We want you to know you're not in this thing alone, that you've got somebody journeying with you through it. So we wanna help you. So let us pray with you about whatever's going on in your life. And then in just a moment, when we finish singing this last song, my wife Kim's gonna come and she'll close us out. So guys, I want you to know something. I love you more than you know, and I'm so honored I get to be your pastor. Thank you for starting 2017 with us. This is gonna be the best year yet, and I'm so glad that we get to experience it together. So stay in your feet all over the room. Let's worship together one more time. God bless you guys. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song. 